welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Gamboa, a managing director in the same practice. Today, we'll be revisiting one of our, and hopefully your, favorite topics, Pillar 2. However, rather than focusing on the technical rules as we have in past episodes, we're going to explore some more practical considerations in light of the imminent widespread implementation of GLOBE. Specifically, what should taxpayers do to prepare for the implementation of Pillar 2? For this discussion, we're joined today by Marcus Heland, a Managing Director in KPMG's WNT Economic and Valuation Services, or EVS, and David Lan, a Managing Director in KPMG's International Tax Value Chain Management, or VCM. Welcome, both of you. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Gary. So given the considerable reach of the GLOBE rules, many countries have started taking steps to comply with OECD guidance, preparing for implementation. Marcus, can you give us a quick recap of the latest and where we stand on this journey towards Pillar 2 implementation? Thanks, Kristen. I'll try to be quick, but there's uh, a lot going on. Maybe starting with recent legislative developments in Europe. So the UK has their spring finance bill, which includes the income inclusion rule in a domestic top of tax. That bill has now completed going through the House of Commons and as well as the government amendment process. And so that bill is now substantially enacted for UK GAAP purposes and IFRS. It's not yet substantially enacted for US GAAP, however, because it hasn't yet been signed by the king. We're expecting that in, in the summer time. The under-tax profits rule is not in that spring finance bill. I think the uh, communication from the UK government is that a UK UTPR is not expected to take effect before 2025. Switzerland recently did a public vote, a referendum, and the outcome of that on 18 June was that the public approved moving forward with the implementation of Pillar 2 in Switzerland. So the next step is for the Swiss Federal Council to now implement the relevant GLOBE provisions. And and I think the income inclusion rule and the domestic top-up tax seems to be likely to be implemented and take effect in Switzerland next year. The under-tax profits rule is not expected to take effect in Switzerland in 24, but to take effect the following year in 2025. And then, of course, the EU member states, ancient news now, the EU directive passed in December of last year and requires that all large EU member states implement the income inclusion rule to take effect in 24 and an under-tax profits rule to take effect in 2025. Moving to Asia-Pacific, Japan and South Korea, of course, have already enacted the income inclusion rule, both to take effect in 2024. South Korea, of course, has also enacted the under-tax profits rule that takes effect also in 2024. That remains controversial, and there's an expectation that they'll shift that back to 2025, but that remains uh, still uncertain. Other large jurisdictions in Asia, including Australia and New Zealand, have both released plans to implement the Pillar 2 rules. 
China has not been as transparent about its intentions with respect to Pillar 2, and so there's no substantive update there. The investment hub countries in Asia, so Singapore, Hong Kong, and Malaysia, are all expected to implement qualified domestic topic taxes. In the case of Singapore and Hong Kong, it seems 2025 is the likely effective date, and Malaysia is less clear as to when that domestic topic tax would be effective. Then North America, so Canada has released official plans to implement both the IAR and the UTPR. The effective dates are expected to be consistent with the global agreement, so 2024 and then 2025 for the UTPR. Mexico seems to be on a similar path. And then, of course, there's the United States, and it remains unlikely that the United States will be implementing Pillar 2-inspired legislation in the current Congress. It also remains the case that Pillar 2, and in particular, the undertax profits rule is controversial in the United States. So, Kristen, as you can see, the train has very much left the station. Of the G7 economies, two of them have already enacted the rules, Japan and the UK. Three of them are required to enact as per the EU directive. That's France, Germany, and Italy. And then Canada has an official plan to do the same. So I think everyone now recognizes that Pillar 2 is very real and and it's now time to start preparing. That's helpful. And I mean, obviously, as you just went through, there really is a lot going on across the world with respect to Pillar 2. With that being said, what are some practical operational considerations in light of these developments? I think there's three elements in terms of coming requirements that every multinational, every public multinational will need to think about. So there's the financial statement disclosure requirement, there's the provision requirement, and then there's compliance. So starting with disclosures, for a U.S.-based company, you need to think about your U.S. GAAP consolidated financial statements and any disclosures that may be required in the current year financial statements related to Pillar 2 and whether it is expected to have a material impact on the company going forward. You then have the local statutory financial statements and whether there's disclosures required in those local stat accounts also this year. You then have the provision piece. So this is Q1 of next year, which is when the the rules will first be effective for multinationals and for calendar year companies. And so there, I think companies are in the process of preparing the necessary work papers and documentation to demonstrate and to compute what the appropriate tax provision is for Pillar 2. And then you have the compliance piece, which is further out. So for the 2024 year, the globe information return, which is one aspect of the compliance, that would be due for a calendar year company in June of 2026. So I think right now what companies are most focused on is understanding what, if any, disclosures are required for the consolidated financial statements and local statutory financial statements, and then making sure that there's a process in place to be able to confidently put up a provision number in Q1 of next year when the rules first take effect. So obviously there are things companies should be doing today. The last time we talked on this podcast, Marcus, you had mentioned that we're expecting additional guidance, which hopefully will answer some of the open questions that are currently outstanding. Is there any update on the timing of this guidance, both from the OECD as well as maybe guidance we're expecting from local jurisdictions, and what have we seen since the last podcast? 
So in terms of OECD level guidance, so this is the administrative guidance that is addressing technical ambiguities in the rules. I'm expecting there to be two or three additional tranches uh, between now and the end of the year. And I think there could be a tranche in July. So likely mid-July around the G20 finance ministers meeting, I would expect the OECD to have either released a tranche of guidance or to be very close to releasing that guidance. There could be, say, 15 to 20 technical related issues included in that release. I think the big ticket items would be a potential QDMTT safe harbor treatment of transferable credits, which of course includes many of the credits in the Inflation Reduction Act. And then also there is consideration of a UTPR transitional safe harbor, which if agreed, and it's far from certain that this will be agreed, would effectively delay the undertax profits rule in respect of either just the UPE jurisdiction or potentially jurisdictions beyond the UPE if you know certain requirements were met, such as, you know, for example, the jurisdiction has a statutory corporate income tax rate of say 20%. So I think there is consideration of a safe harbor along those lines. Uh, that could be included in that July release, but we uh, wait and see. In terms of country-level guidance, we see draft legislation from various countries almost you know, every week. And I think a challenge here for multinationals is to effectively need to stay in front of and review all that national legislation to ensure that the outcomes of those rules are aligned with the OECD model rules and commentary. And then in addition to draft legislation, a number of countries are still consulting on legislation through public consultation processes. And then we're also seeing other forms of guidance emerge, such as the UK, for example, recently released what's called a guidance manual. And there's actually a few interesting pieces of information in that manual. So for example, on the safe harbor, the UK's view on a few issues is notable. So there's been one question that has emerged from the OECD safe harbor guidance, which is essentially the OECD rules require that in order to access the transitional safe harbor that you have a qualified CBC report. And there has been a question as to what level we're making that determination. Is it made at the overall report level such that it's kind of an all or nothing test? Or is it made at the jurisdictional level where you could have a single jurisdiction that wasn't qualified, but that wouldn't taint the rest of your report? The UK guidance makes clear that it's a country by country determination, which I think is a welcome development. But it's unclear whether that's just the UK's rule or whether they're speaking for the full inclusive framework. So I think you can see that there's a steady stream of guidance coming from both the OECD and from countries, some legislation, some public consultations, some manuals. And as I said, I think one of the core challenges that companies have is just trying to stay in front of all of these various forms of guidance that are trickling out between now and the end of the year. So with countries drafting preliminary guidance, one question that comes to my mind at least is, Should we generally expect countries to adopt the OECD guidance? And then if so, would you expect that countries adopt it statically? So referring to the OECD guidance on a certain date or dynamically adopting future changes as the rules evolve over time? In principle, all countries that are part of the inclusive framework 
are signed up to follow the outcomes of the OECD model commentary and the subsequent administrative guidance, including the safe harbors. So I think in general, there's an expectation of consistency around the world. But, you know, we've already seen instances of that going wrong. So I mentioned, for example, South Korea, which has an effective date for a UTPR that is 2024, although there was an agreement, I think, globally for the UTPR to take effect in 2025. And so I think multinationals are concerned that if countries can't get the effective date right, which seems like just the the most basic item, then how likely is it that countries are going to get the more technical aspects of these rules right and be consistent there too? And in that regard, I think there, as we've reviewed national legislation around the world, just using the UK as an example, I think in general, say 90 plus percent of the rules are aligned with the OECD model and commentary. But I think it's really important to identify what are the key aspects of the rules for a multinational and its facts, and then just make sure that there's 100 percent overlap between the national legislation and the OECD. And in a few places, one of our WNT colleagues has identified with respect to the flow through rules. The UK legislation has a number of deviations from the OECD model and and commentary. It's not clear whether that was deliberate or whether it was just through the technical drafting. There was just not 100% consistency. In terms of the dynamic or static question, we're, of course, talking here about 100 jurisdictions implementing these rules, and all of those countries have their own legal system and legislative process. Some countries may do static, others may do dynamic. I think the preferable approach would be a dynamic approach, recognizing that there's going to be a steady stream of guidance coming out from the OECD, certainly this year, but it's likely that we'll see you know, a continued steady stream of guidance from the OECD for you know years ahead. So I think ideally it would be done on a dynamic basis, but it's not clear to me that every country can necessarily do that. That makes sense. And obviously time will tell what the various countries do over time. So one topic that's related to updates and practical considerations that I know is on the mind of some taxpayers is how jurisdictions will actually collect the tax, whether at the time of filing or through estimated payments. Is there any OECD guidance on payments and do we have a clear understanding as to how it's going to work by jurisdiction? The OECD guidance does not establish a prescriptive approach on estimated payments. So instead, it's left to the local country to decide in light of its own existing tax rules and and collection mechanisms. And not many countries are so advanced in their legislative and administrative process that they've actually filled in the blank on this question. But one country that we have seen some indication is Ireland, which released a feedback statement a few months back. And that document does set out an approach around this. And and Ireland's approach, as reflected in that document, is to essentially not do estimated payments, but to instead make any pillar two tax due with respect to Ireland at the time of the filing of the Globe Information Return. Other countries may, of course, be less generous and take a different approach. And this is just another item where you could see deviation across countries. And I think it's important as we see more legislation and more administrative documents from countries to start to document all of the various requirements, including estimated payments. Obviously, implementation of Pillar 2 is going to place a significant burden on 
multinational entities across the world. And while Pillar 2 is a tax regime, complying with the new rules is not just a tax issue, as it requires departments across an organization to work together to comply with the rules. But just for today, focusing on the tax department, what should each member of a tax department be thinking about as we move toward Pillar 2 implementation? So if you think about a normal tax department, you'd have the head of tax, you'd then have a compliance and provision function. There'd typically be a planning function. Some companies may have a policy function. And then larger groups also tend to have a tax technology group. And I think Pillar 2 will affect all of those people and affect them in different ways. So if you think about the head of tax, I think they're, of course, thinking about the more strategic elements of this, which is what resources do we need in order to meet this challenge? What's the estimated financial cost in terms of cash tax and, and ETR to be able to communicate with the executive management team, the audit committee, and other stakeholders? If you think about the compliance and provision folks, they're, of course, thinking about this very operationally in terms of what is all the information that's going to need to be reported What are the other functions that need to be involved in this in terms of the financial accounting folks, the controllership folks? And so going through and and just doing the very granular calculations to confidently put up a provision and then ultimately comply. You then have the planning department that is, of course, asking the question of does the current structure that was set up against a different baseline of law does that still make sense in light of a 15% country-by-country minimum tax? And so doing modeling to determine if the current structure still makes sense and thinking about potential planning opportunities to preserve as much benefit as possible. I think you then have the policy department that is identifying what are the items that are still open for interpretation, such as transferable credits and other types of items, And advocating for favorable clarifications to those open items is something I I think a number of policy functions are focused on. And then, of course, you have the tax technology folks, which are looking at this and saying the data points that are required to do this math is very extensive. Are our existing financial accounting tools and technology equipped to produce the data that we need? And then also thinking about pillar two as just one part of this, right? So you have other requirements coming like public country by country reporting, like enhanced financial statement disclosures, like ESG related disclosures. And I think it's crystallizing that there's a number of data points that'll be required for all of those use cases that are common. And so companies, I think particularly technology folks, are starting to think about establishing a sort of common data model and single source of truth from a data standpoint that can feed all of these various use cases. And so I think all of those folks in the entire tax department will be impacted by this. And I think the way it'll impact folks is different as I laid out there. Thanks, Marcus. So I think Marcus has made it crystal clear that now is the time to get ready for the pillar two. And this last part of the episode, let's focus on how taxpayers should prepare for pillar two implementation. David, you've spent a lot of time working with our clients to help them prepare for pillar two. What have you recommended to your clients on on how to approach this difficult task? 
Thanks, Gary. I, I think the first thing I would recommend to most clients is to breathe and not panic. I think while there is a lot of guidance to come and the law is quite large and complicated, there's a very practical way to kind of tackle the rules. And the key lies in, uh, first and foremost in the transitional safe harbors. I think the very first thing all clients should do is get a handle on how the transitional safe harbors apply to all the various jurisdictions. In doing so, they would also need to check their CYCR and make sure that it is a usable CYCR for these transitional safe harbor purposes. The reason why we advocate doing this is that the safe harbors for the first three years could do an enormous amount of work in reducing the amount of required work for companies and also have the advantage of reducing their top-up tax to zero and minimizing their compliance burden. Once clients have done the relatively quick analysis on safe harbors, we then recommend they take a step back and whether it's checking the jurisdictions that have fallen out of the safe harbor or looking at their material jurisdictions or most complex jurisdictions, we do recommend getting started on an initial assessment of what the potential pillar two impact could be to their key jurisdictions in the absence of a safe harbor. And the reason why we would advocate doing this, despite the fact that they may not be subject to actual taxation until after the safe harbor period, which could be as late as 2027, is that we expect that most C-suite communications will require some degree of understanding as to whether with or without the safe harbors, there is a material amount of tax due as a result of the new Pillar 2 regime. So this, in this initial assessment, we do not recommend boiling the ocean. So you're not doing this assessment across every single jurisdiction. You're selecting the jurisdictions that matter most, which is often with reference to a rubric of does the jurisdiction pass the safe harbor or not? Does the jurisdiction, uh, is it material or complicated or not? And also, does that jurisdiction actually have different sources of data? right? Like a pillar two is enormously impacted by like kind of the data requirements that uh, Marcus mentioned before. And so if you have a otherwise mediocre jurisdiction, but with very complicated data sources, that is a jurisdiction probably worth checking out and testing. Coming out of that initial assessment, one thing that you're looking to do is not necessarily do every single adjustment. There are over 62 adjustments in Pillar 2, and not every one of them will be material for provision purposes. What we're seeing is out of that roughly 62-plus population of adjustments is that most companies have only 7 to 15 material provision-worthy adjustments to kind of handle and deal with, and not in every single jurisdiction, but in kind of like more of their key or complex jurisdictions. So triaging that, prioritizing that, and figure out what those different adjustments are in each of those different jurisdictions is really the goal of the second task. You're hoping to come out of the first task with a good idea of your safe harbors, the second task with a good idea of what your potential high-level liability would be, as well as a good understanding as to what your potential most impactful adjustments are. The last step that we advocate is basically bringing everything all together and taking a step back and saying, all right, now that I have an idea for what my safe harbors look like, I have a good idea of what my initial uh, pillar two impact would look like. What are the remaining things that I need to do to kind of build a finalized process, a repeatable process for the long term around pillar two? And that's something that you have time to do. You have, uh, you're using, usually relying on the safe harbors to give yourself that time. But with this information to like close the data gaps and build a process for compliance long term. Somewhere along the way, in both the first and second tasks, 
some clients will occasionally entertain some planning opportunities kind of in line with what Marcus was mentioning, with what the planning folks are, are looking at and what the tax policy folks are looking at. If your structure no longer makes sense for the pillar two regime, this is usually where after like the second task where you kind of have a high level understanding as to what the impact is, you can then start entertaining uh, how to kind of optimize your structure. David, what's the primary goal of a phased approach? By taking the phase approach, we're hoping to break the monumental task of Pillar 2 into actionable items and digestible chunks. But most importantly, we're aiming to try to give the tax department as much relevant information as possible up front so that they're able to make decisions now, right? That includes understanding what the process and operational lift would be to actually put a process in place. It includes understanding what the cash tax liability may be when this all comes to head in 2027. It also enables them to have those key discussions with auditors, their C-suite, and their non-tax stakeholders. In fact, two key areas where we see the most traction on this coming out of the phase approach is that everyone expects tax to lead a Pillar 2 project, but tax is very much only part of the the calculus, right? As Marcus mentioned, the tax department has all these different considerations, but there's also the finance team that often is the gatekeepers to a lot of the globe information and accounting data that the tax department doesn't have that they'll need to do the actual calculations. And further is if the finance department doesn't have it, or if it does have it, uh, you often have to engage IT to kind of figure out the different reporting requirements. One common place where we see a lot of discussion and and, uh, attraction is Wherever there is like a major ERP upgrade going on, such as a S4 HANA implementation, a new Oracle Cloud implementation, or like an HFM consolidating implementation, the tax department needs a seat at the table in those discussions so that you're not finding yourself repeating the work a year or two from now when Pillar 2 hits the books. So for the primary goal, I think as Marcus explained very well before, this is not a tax-only issue. The lift is much larger and involves an interdepartmental approach that organizations cannot take lightly. Yeah, this is obviously going to be a heavy lift for a lot of organizations. The complexity, the working together with different functions within the organization, all going to be very difficult. So how can KPMG help? with this process? The role KPMG has played in in most of the engagements I've been in is that we're kind of like the accelerator for a tax department. Like the tax department generally understands what needs to be done. Where we can help is we have folks like Marcus and folks like you and Kristen, where an hour spent with our WNT can save you several hours of reading and still maybe not have the complexity, right? So that global network, that tax expertise is like probably the number one thing we bring to the table that's quite helpful. Secondly is that help and that guidance not only accelerates your ability to communicate with the C-suite, which is often giving you very tight timelines to kind of bring that guidance and also uh, make some budget decisions. It also helps with kind of like the resource constraints that are very common today in tax departments. Tax departments have been bombarded with requirements all throughout the last five or six years, right? with TCJA, the changes in compliance. Pillar 2 is just another major, major uh, change in the tax paradigm. And this one is not something that most tax departments can handle on their own because it is multinational, right? It is not the fact that you can simply sit down and read the regs and kind of get comfortable over a weekend. It's something that, to Marx's point, one of the big challenges is how do you even stay ahead of changes in German law, changes in or interpretations in UK law, so on and so forth. And this is where I think KPMG's big four footprint can be 
be of use to a lot of our clients. Last but not least is when you start having those conversations with your IT department and your finance department, sometimes you just need a translator, right? Like the tax department might get comfortable with what it needs, but then translating those into actual software requirements is a skill in itself. And we have our ignition service line, which is wholly devoted to kind of that and specialized in tax as well. Last but not least, as I'll probably mention, uh, we obviously have a Pillar 2 model, a model that we use internally to deliver services to our clients around provision planning and compliance. And that's something that can be made available to most of our non-SEC audit clients. So again, we're here to help. We are an accelerator or a partner in whatever it is our clients need to do on their Pillar 2 journey, whether they want to take our phased approach or recommended phased approach or go all in and boil the ocean or do whatever it is they need to do. It's important to understand that Pillar 2 is large, it can be scary, but they don't have to do it alone. We're here to help. So thank you, Marcus and David, for joining Gary and I today and talking through practical issues related to Pillar 2 readiness. I think the key takeaway from our discussion today is that although there's still uncertainty around certain issues, which hopefully will be addressed by guidance expected later this year, companies should be preparing for Pillar 2 today based on the available guidance. And while preparing for Pillar 2 may seem like an overwhelming task, taking a phased approach that David explained and using the resources that are available seems like a way to make the process a lot more manageable. So as always, please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on the latest developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care. (laughs) 